Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. In this episode, we were lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Allison Laws. Dr. Laws is a breast surgical oncologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. We delve deep into topics that many trainees struggle with, new adjuvant therapy for breast cancer, indications for axillary lymph node dissections in 2020, and an approach to recurrent breast cancer. Finally, Dr. Laws shared some deep insights with us on how her experience as a patient shaped her perspective as a surgeon. Dr. Laws, thank you so much for joining us on the Cold Steel podcast today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and what your training pathway was? Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in Markham, Ontario, um, which is a small um, suburb of Toronto. Um, And then I did my Bachelor of Science at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Um, I've moved around a lot. So I then went back to Ontario to uh, medical school at McMaster University. And then in terms of my surgical training, I did my general surgery residency uh, at the University of Calgary. Um, and then um, uh, and then I went on to do a, a breast surgical oncology fellowship, which I've just finished up this summer. Um, and I did that in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and it was a combined training program between Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, and then currently I've accepted a breast uh, surgical oncology position at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So I've just started on there as junior faculty. Um, and then I'm also uh, concurrently over the next two years doing a master's of public health through uh, the Harvard um, Chan School of Public Health. And so I'm kind of doing that concurrently with my first couple of years of practice. I remember, you know, you weren't, if I recall correctly, you weren't completely sold initially on doing general surgery. Like I think you had initially planned on potentially doing obstetrics and gynecology. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> what, made, what made you change uh directions and and become their loss in our game mm-hmm. um yeah it's a good question i mean i i enjoyed sort of the clinical and technical aspects of both fields um and i actually like i had done um a bunch of obstetrics and gynecology rotations early on and i liked it and so i sort of just committed um as a medical student you know i was at mcmaster's so it's a three-year program and you feel a little bit of pressure to sort of commit early and make sure that you're planning your clerkship, you know, appropriately so that you're competitive for the match, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I had planned a couple of general surgery electives just kind of later on because I felt that they would, you know, give my profile a little bit of diversity and give me a little bit of exposure to a, you know, semi-related field, you know, surgical field operating in the abdomen. Um, And then I basically loved those four weeks of general surgery. Um, And I think a lot of it was the people. Um, I felt like, um, it was just sort of, a, I felt that the general surgeons I worked with, at least for those four weeks, um, I just felt like I fit in really well with them. I liked them. You know, it was a really kind of collaborative group. General surgeons were fun. I just, I, I felt that it was kind of a better fit from that perspective. And I also really, you know, loved the clinical side of things and the technical side of things. And it kind of met all of the other criteria that I was looking for. Um, but yeah, it really was the people that kind of changed, uh, changed my mind. <laughs> I think that rings true for a lot of us. Um, what, what advice do you have? Like, you know, obviously you had done most of your electives in uh, a different specialty and then you wanted to apply to general surgery. How did you sort of 
manage that during your interview process, during CARMS, and uh, what advice do you have to applicants who maybe change their mind late in the game, especially for three three year medical students? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was very stressful, um, and you know, I think I was just tried to be as honest as possible. Um, so you know, I made sure to address that fact in my personal letter. I made sure to address it in the interviews. Um, I, um, what else? I mean, I think I really made it, tried to make it very clear to the general surgery people that I had worked with as a medical student that, you know, I really truly had changed my mind and really kind of tried to seek out their support as well and made sure that they were kind of aware of that fact so that they could potentially address that in reference letters and, you know, make sure that the messaging was really consistent. Um, but I think there's no question that, you know, it's a challenge when you change late in the game. Um, and, you know, I probably had fewer interviews as a result. And, you know, you kind of just have to roll with it and, um, and do your best. Uh, but I, I, you know, have absolutely zero regrets. And I think it's also really important that, you know, if you do change your mind, you need to know yourself and you need to know what the right path is for you. And, you know, I was willing to accept that if it didn't work out, you know, the match didn't work out, then I would try again the following year. And, but, but I really wanted to sort of commit to the, to the path that I felt was right for me in the long term. I think that's excellent advice. Um, you know, you finished residency in Calgary and then obviously went on to do breast uh, oncological surgery in uh, Boston. Why you could, I'm sure you could have done anything, got any fellowship that you wanted. So why, why breast surgery? And what was it about that, uh, that drew you to the field? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, for me, I actually kind of gained and developed an interest in breast through clinical research initially. Um, so I was got sort of hooked in with Maylin Kwan, who's one of the breast surgeons in Calgary, um, for an early research project in my first year of residency. Um, and I, you know, she became a mentor of mine, um, both from a clinical and research perspective. And as I sort of developed a you know, research profile in the breast umbrella, I think I just kind of naturally developed a clinical interest alongside that. Um, you know, I had always had an interest in women's health. That was part of my draw to obstetrics and gynecology. And so um, I think that piece sort of fit nicely um, with breast. And, and as I moved through residency, it really became clear to me that I was looking for a field um, where I could not only sort of develop a clinical expertise in a single area, but also have a concurrent sort of research career. Um, and I felt that breast really offered um, that opportunity. Um, and, you know, that was also then kind of a, a motivator for pursuing the fellowship as well. I do want to make one comment uh, about having watched you do research as a resident. I think you're one of the few people that actually listened to advice from uh, people who had gone before us. And you, you picked a topic uh, that you were able to generate a fairly big uh, sort of database on and then, uh, and then ask that database uh, multiple different kinds of questions, and it turned uh, out to be a very kind of productive line of research. Can you sort of comment on that? And um, is that was that a deliberate sort of choice, or um, and is that something that you sort of recommend for people looking to do research in residency? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. I'm trying to think now. Essentially, almost all of the projects that I did as a resident did come from a single database that I basically built with chart review sort of in my first and second year of residency. Um, and so I think in the end, I had four publications out of that kind of single data set. Um, and I mean, there's lots of questions that really could be continued to ask from that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it, it worked out very well. I think, you know, that's not always, um, it, I guess the, the field that you're interested in and the question that you're interested in doesn't always lend itself well to that. And I think really what made me um, productive was the fact that I was truly interested in what the, in sort of the questions that I was asking and the, the field of research that I was pursuing. And I think that is probably the most important thing above all um, is that you pick something that you're actually interested in. Um, but certainly if you can sort of curate a data set that is, you know, complete and comprehensive and then allows you to ask multiple questions, I mean, that certainly worked for me. And I think it's a great strategy as a resident. 
we wanted to take the opportunity to ask you some burning questions about breast cancer and and breast surgery. Uh, as as you will remember, uh, we texted you many times while we were studying for for our royal college exams. Um, I don't know if it's too too early for me to talk about the royal college exam. I still have a little <laughs> still PTSD, fresh. too too fresh. Um, but uh, there definitely breast cancer and and breast in general can be uh, a confusing topic for residents. And so we wanted to take the opportunity to just pick your brain about a few of the topics that I think consistently kind of come up as as challenging topics. And I think the first one I wanted to start with is the uh, sort of the new adjuvant uh, scenario. So, you know, the, the the scenario that they often will paint for you on an, on an exam is that you'll you'll let's say you'll get a 50 year old female who comes in with a new diagnosis of a breast cancer um, and uh, has a palpable clinical nodes or, or a positive clinical node on FNA, how do you go about sorting out who needs a, a new, adju- new adjuvant treatment and how do you sort of approach that in your head? Yeah, yeah, definitely, um, you know, a bit of a controversial topic and a confusing topic. I think, um, you know, the way that I was taught to think about this, you know, in residency and then further in fellowship um, you know, I think there's kind of one bucket that are patients with triple negative and HER2 positive disease. And then there's another bucket are, that are patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to think about those patients a little bit differently. Um, so, you know, for patients with triple negative and HER2 positive disease, we know that you know, the majority of those patients are going to receive chemotherapy as part of their treatment. Um, and, you know, there's two important trials that I think are nice to be aware about as the surgeon that have come out in the last couple of years um, that look at, you know, our ability to tailor a patient's adjuvant systemic therapy based on their response to a standard neoadjuvant regimen. And so the two trials that I'm referencing, one is the CREATE X trial and one is the Catherine trial. And in both of these trials, so CREATE X was HER2 negative patients, Catherine was HER2 positive patients. People receive standard neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Then if they had any residual disease in the breast or the axilla, so patients who did not have an overall PCR, they were then eligible to be randomized to either standard adjuvant treatment or a tailored therapy. So in CREATE-X, that involved capecitabine, and in Catherine, that involved TDM1 instead of adjuvant trastuzumab. And they showed um, a survival benefit for people, uh, for patients in the intervention arm. And I think these these two trials have really solidified the the value from a systemic therapy perspective of using a neoadjuvant approach. And these have been certainly two very practice-changing papers, um, at least at my institution, um, whereby really sort of all patients with triple negative disease are strongly considered for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And in HER2 positive, you know, those with stage two and above disease, so either node positive disease or tumors greater than two centimeters in size, again, are kind of strongly considered for a neoadjuvant approach. We also know that in these subtypes, um, you know, those patients are the most likely to get potential local regional therapy benefits. So these are the patients whose tumors really shrink down and become amenable to breast conserving surgery if they were large to begin with. Um, Or these are the patients who are most likely to have an axillary PCR and potentially be able to avoid an axillary lymph node dissection. So that would apply to the patient that you've, you've referenced in your case, right? A node positive patient um, if they have triple negative disease, they have probably about a 50% chance of being able to avoid an axillary lymph node dissection with new adjuvant chemotherapy. And with HER2 positive disease, it's even higher, you know, in the 60 to 80% range. Um, so, you know, it's become that there's really a lot of advantages to a neoadjuvant approach. Um, and certainly I think anybody with triple negative or HER2 positive disease, you know, it's not unreasonable to consider a multidisciplinary consultation and really be thinking about any of these patients as potentially benefiting from neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, for patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease, it's a little murkier um, because, you know, particularly in the era of genomic assays, what we're learning is that, you know, both a fairly substantial subset of both node negative or node positive patients may not actually get a lot of benefit from chemotherapy. And so chemotherapy may not necessarily be a part of their treatment. And you don't want to be overcommitting people to neoadjuvant chemotherapy um, and, you know, potentially getting in this scenario where you're over treating patients. 
Um, so I think we have to be particularly thoughtful in this group. Um, you know, that being said, a patient who's node positive at presentation, really their only chance to avoid an axillary lymph node dissection is with a neoadjuvant approach. But we need to recognize that depending on sort of the features, the biology of their disease, um, so thing, you, know, you can look at the tumor grade, you can look at um, you know, the histology, if you have a genomic assay available, you can look at that even off of a core biopsy. Um, and you know, depending on their biology, you can sort of get a sense of what type of response they're going to have. Um, and you know, in some cases, the likelihood of an axillary PCR is really small and you might actually benefit from just an upfront surgery approach, you know, really get a sense of the stage of the disease so that your medical oncologist then has all the information they need to make their adjuvant therapy decisions. Um, so you know, I think, again, in, in a clinically node positive, hormone receptor positive HER2 negative patient, I certainly think um, a multi disciplinary consultation and consideration for neoadjuvant chemotherapy is reasonable. Um, but I think we do need to be a little bit more thoughtful about sort of committing patients too early and over-treating patients with that approach. There are a couple of things I think to just highlight again what you're saying. So I think that the, where it gets confusing, and uh, you've, you've made that dis distinction very beautifully, yeah, is that you know just because they're node positive doesn't necessarily mean that they, they will benefit from getting chemotherapy but, uh, you know, for an exam purpose, it probably makes sense to at least say that you're going to send them to a multidisciplinary clinic to actually, um, ha you know, have everyone's input. But, but that it, you know, that you have to be thoughtful a little bit about who's going to actually get uh, neoadjuvant therapy. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, in in the real life setting, I think it's also really helpful to know sort of what your local medical oncology practices are to some extent. Um, and I found this even doing electives as a resident, you know, I did a few breast electives in Toronto and Vancouver. And then of course I had experience in Calgary. Um, and, you know, the, the, the sort of local institutional practice patterns do differ a little bit between those places. Um, and so I think sort of being mindful of that and, and having a good relationship with your medical oncology colleagues and, um, and knowing, you know, if you can start to learn what types of things they'll consider a good indication versus not a good indication. And, you know, educating yourself as a surgeon, I think, is really helpful. Can you talk a little bit about what new adjuvant chemotherapy involves? Like what is the regimen that's typically used? Sort of the mechanics, like how many months does that work out to be? Um, and even even the logistics, like do you always clip the primary tumor in the, in the axillary uh, node if they do have a positive axilla? Uh, can you talk a little bit about what what's done at your institution? Yeah. So again, um, variable depending on the subtype. Um, so for um, patients with HER2 positive disease, of course, um, their neoadjuvant therapy uh, should involve some kind of HER2 directed therapy. Um, so kind of the standard therapy would be trastuzumab plus or minus, there's a second agent that is sometimes added called pertuzumab, um, depending um, sort of on the extent of disease and the disease features. Um, the chemotherapy backbone that's given along with the HER2-directed targeted therapy varies a little bit by institution. Um, so, you know, answering the question about kind of the typical regimen is a little bit tricky. There are, I think it's the kind of probably what's good to know is just that there's multiple different regimens, some that are a little bit more chemotherapy intensive than others. Um, you know, the other approach is that sometimes they'll start with sort of a more, you know, mini chemotherapy regimen, you know, assess the tumor response. Uh, so maybe give something like just taxol Herceptin, you know, assess response. If the patient's not having a great response, then they might add uh, AC, uh, you know, towards the end of the regimen. So it, it is sort of a little bit of a moving target. Um, for triple negative disease or, hormo or uh, hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease, typically, um, I'd say the most standard regimen is um, ACT, so anthracycline, cyclophosphamide, uh, and taxol. Um, and, uh, you know, again, the kind of exact timing and, and dosing varies a little bit, but in general, there are injections that are given, you know, every one or sometimes every two weeks, depending on the medication. And it's usually sort of a three to four month course of treatment in total. Um, 
the, yeah, so in terms of kind of surgical planning in a patient who's going to receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy, you know, making sure that you've really worked up the extent of disease in the breast and the axilla at the outset is important. Um, certainly any sites of disease that are suspicious on whatever breast imaging you've chosen um, should be biopsied and anything that is a biopsy proven cancer should be clipped. Um, and, you know, the practice of clipping lymph nodes is a little bit controversial, a little bit institution specific. Um, at um, Dana-Farber, we do routinely clip lymph nodes that are, um, you know, any lymph node that's biopsied gets a clip. Um, and then if that lymph node is, it turns out to be positive, and if the patient is then, um, you know, has a good response and becomes clinically node negative by physical exam after their treatment, um, then they are, you know, in most cases offered a central lymph node biopsy as well as a targeted excision of that clipped node. Um, and we actually localize those with a radioactive seed. Um, so that node gets uh, excised based on the localization with the seed, and then we perform a sentinel lymph node biopsy with dual tracer concurrently. You know, you talked a little bit about genomic profiling. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that something that's pretty standard um, at Dana-Farber and uh, BWH, or is that something that you're using selectively in, 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 the, in those cases where if you're using it selectively, who are you using it in? Yeah. So um, I would say, so for patients who are clinically um, node negative and have estrogen receptor positive HER2 negative disease, um, the majority of those patients are getting a genomic assay to help guide their adjuvant chemotherapy at Dana-Farber. Um, and, you know, they follow the Taylor-X trial um, that suggested the patients with a low or intermediate, we use the oncotype here, the 21 gene recurrence score. So patients with a low or intermediate score um, are typically not felt to have um, a significant benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy, whereas patients with a high recurrence score, again, you know, kind of generalizing would typically be considered for adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, you know, there are other clinical features that can trump that. So I wouldn't say, you know, we make decisions based on the genomic assay exclusively, but it, you know, it's an important piece, I think, in guiding the decision making. Um, we don't have the same sort of level one evidence for the use of the recurrent score in patients with no positive disease. Um, however, there is sort of mounting evidence to suggest that it probably can be used in that setting as well. And there's an ongoing clinical trial that will answer that question called Rx Ponder, but we're not expecting results for still a few years. Um, so it is being used selectively in node positive patients as well. Um, we're also starting to use it sometimes to help make neoadjuvant treatment decisions as well. So patients, again, with estrogen receptor positive or to negative disease, um, if it's a patient who has a large tumor and, you know, we're thinking about neoadjuvant therapy, maybe to help facilitate breast conservation, or if it's a patient with node positive disease, and we're thinking about, you know, can we downstage the axilla to avoid an axe dissection? Sometimes we'll use an oncotype um, to help guide the approach of whether a neoadjuvant chemotherapy versus neoadjuvant endocrine therapy may be more appropriate. And particularly if your goal is breast conservation, um, you know, neoadjuvant endocrine therapy can often help you achieve the downstaging that you need and can potentially help with this issue of not sort of over-treating people by giving them chemotherapy early on when, you know, depending on the final features of the tumor at time of surgery, they may not actually need that therapy. Um, so that's, I would say, a little bit more novel use of um, the genomic assay um, that, you know, I suspect will become more popular, but um, I think that's sort of um, something that's evolving. Is this, are you talking about Oncotype DX or is this a different genomic assay yeah. factor? Yeah, Oncotype DX or sort of the 21 gene recurrence scores, the other sort of more generic name for it. Um, yeah, so that's the one that we use. And I mean, there's lots of data coming out about some of these other assays, PAM50 and um, <laughs> Uh, Etc. But the one that I'm most familiar with, just because we use it at Dana Farber, is the obviously you, the way you're thinking about these issues are is at a fairly high level, fairly sophisticated kind of way where you're really trying to think about 
what the evidence is behind uh, the various treatment options and, and the, the patient in front of you. Uh, and obviously, you know, the multidisciplinary kind of discussion about these things are is super important. You know, in the rectal cancer world, that also seems to be a big move where, uh, especially now that we're having things like uh, total neoadjuvant therapy, um, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's becoming increasingly important. Do you think that we're going to get to this point where, you know, all breast cancers need to be discussed at a multidisciplinary meeting or do you think that would be too overwhelming? Like, what are your thoughts uh, uh, on that? Like, do you think breast cancer is going to become an increasingly specialized kind of rarefied specialty that you really can't practice unless you're doing a high volume of it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think so. I mean, I can tell you the model at Dana-Farber is that um, all new breast cancers are seen in a multidisciplinary setting. So all new breast cancers are scheduled both with the breast surgeon and with a medical oncologist at the first visit. Um, and it was similar at Mass General, except that their multidisciplinary setting um, at the first visit always involved a visit with the breast surgeon and with the radiation oncologist, actually. And then they would see the medical oncologist as well at that visit if it was sort of a patient that the surgeon had flagged as, you know, potentially needing some neoadjuvant systemic therapy. Um, so that is the model that we use. I, I don't know that I feel that that's absolutely necessary for every breast cancer patient. I mean, the reality is there's still a lot of these run of the mill, you know, postmenopausal, ER positive, HER2 negative, node negative, screen detected cancers where, you know, upfront surgery is still very much the standard. And I think most surgeons are pretty comfortable in that sphere. Um, and, you know, how much those patients really gain from a multidisciplinary visit at the first meeting. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure it's, it's uh, totally necessary. Um, and, and I agree. I mean, I think there's some risk there of sort of overwhelming patients with too much information at the first visit, right? Like in some instances you're meeting with three providers, maybe you have genetic testing that day. Like it's a lot, I think for patients to take in. Um, but certainly in triple negative and HER2 positive disease, um, and, you know, I kind of gave my bias earlier, I think that, um, you know, I think a multidisciplinary visit for any patient with that subtype is quite reasonable. And I do think that, you know, the, the care is becoming more and more nuanced. Um, and so, you know, even as a provider having the opportunity to meet in a multidisciplinary setting and just be able to discuss the case with your colleague and kind of bounce ideas off of each other and come up with a plan that's sort of somewhat laid out from the outset, um, I think is nice. I mean, it, it gives me comfort as a provider and I think, uh, I think it does make sense for some patients. Yeah. I think that's an under emphasized point of the multidisciplinary conferences is that, uh, how, how, uh, like how helpful it is for you as a surgeon to actually be able to talk right. about it with other, other clinicians and, make sure you're doing sort of the right thing. Okay. So I think that was a fantastic overview of um, sort of an approach to neoadjuvant therapy. I think another related uh, topic that gets people all twisted up is uh, sort of the indications in 2020 for an actual lymph node dissection. And I really think, uh, honestly, it's probably more helpful to think of it in that way. Like who are the people that actually still should be getting an actual lymph node dissection as opposed to the other way around? Uh, because it's just such a rare occurrence. Uh, and I think, you know, most general surgery residents probably don't see very many of these uh, through their uh, career. So break it down for me. How do you sort of think about who is getting an axillary lymph node dissection in 2020? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's kind of two branch points that I think about. Um, I think the first is whether we're talking about upfront surgery setting versus post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy setting, um, because the algorithm kind of really is different for those two spheres. And so if we think about upfront surgery setting first, then I think your next branch point is sort of, is the patient clinically node negative or are they clinically node positive? Um, And that's defined by your physical exam, as well as by any imaging identified abnormal lymph nodes that are then biopsied and found to have disease. Like that patient I would put in the clinically node positive bucket. And so if they're clinically node positive and we're talking about upfront surgery, that patient needs an axillary lymph node dissection. So that's a pretty easy one. If we're... um, 
clinically node negative and upfront surgery, then most of those patients are eligible for a central lymph node biopsy. That's usually your first step. And if the sentinel node is negative, then that's easy. They don't need an axillary dissection. It's when the sentinel lymph node is positive, this bucket is kind of, I think, the most confusing one. Um, and it's because you sort of need to know what are the clinical trials where there's been investigation of, you know, it's safe to omit an axillary lymph node dissection in under these criteria. And I think, you know, the two trials to three trials, I guess, to know about would be the Yakuza Z11 trial, the Amaro's trial, and then the IBCSG 2301. So the last trial that I referenced, basically, if patients have only micrometastatic disease in the central node, they don't need an axillary lymph node dissection. If patients have had breast conserving surgery and uh, had a T1 to 2 disease to begin with, and then they have one or two positive sentinel nodes, that's basically the criteria for Akazog Z11, and those patients don't need an axillary lymph node dissection. If they have three or more positive nodes, sentinel nodes, then they don't meet those criteria. Or if they had T3 or T4 disease to start with, then they don't meet those criteria and would need a, a node dissection. The AMROSE trial was very similar, except that it also included patients with mastectomy. Um, however, in that trial, patients received axillary radiation. So in that case, if you're, if you're talking about a mastectomy patient, again, T1 to 2 disease with only one or two positive central nodes, they don't necessarily need an axillary lymph node dissection as long as they are candidates for post-mastectomy radiation where the axilla will be radiated. Um, so that is kind of the confusing bucket, I think, and you just kind of have to commit those um, criteria to memory um, you know, for the exam and in real life. Um, if we're talking about post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I almost think this is a little bit easier. Um, so, you know, people who were clinically node negative prior to their treatment and who remain clinically node negative after treatment would have a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And if it's positive, any number of nodes, any volume of disease, they need an axillary lymph node dissection. Um, and basically the same goes for patients who were clinically node positive at the outset. So if they are now have converted to clinically node negative and you do the sentinel lymph node biopsy and remove the clipped node, again, any number of positive nodes, any volume of disease, they need an axe dissection. Um, and then the final category are patients, I guess, who are clinically node positive, get their neoadjuvant chemotherapy and are still clinically node positive. And really, I kind of define that as still a positive physical exam. Um, then those patients need an axe dissection. We typically, you know, don't offer essential biopsy if you can still feel abnormal disease in the axilla. So, you know, unfortunately, there's just not a really super easy way to um, break it down, but that is kind of the branch points that I think about. Um, and hopefully that gives people somewhat of an approach. The, the one thing we didn't mention that I, I think it's just important to clarify is that inflammatory breast cancer, those people are going to have to be referred for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and then, uh, and then all of those people will get an axillary node dissection, right? Yeah, that's correct. So that's really, you know, none of the trials looking at the safety, or sorry, I shouldn't say the safety, none of the trials looking at the feasibility and false negative rates of sentinel lymph node biopsy after new management chemotherapy in a node positive patient have included inflammatory breast cancer. Um, so that is really still an area where, yes, a, a triple therapy approach. So neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by a modified radical mastectomy followed by post-mastectomy radiation is still the standard of care. The one thing I, I was hoping you could also do is to briefly go over uh, your high-level kind of thought process on and approach to the axillary dissection because I think, again, this is something that's going to become an increasingly rare thing for general surgery residents to do. So sort of in, you know, 10 steps or, or less, um, sort of if you could summarize how you approach uh, axe dissection. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this was definitely an area where fellowship training was useful because, you know, I agree. I think I had only done sort of a handful of axillary node dissections. And actually most of the ones I had done as a, as a resident were for melanoma. Um, so, you know, general approach. So I think... Um, 
you know, I usually make an incision sort of along the anterior axillary hairline. Um, I use sort of a curvilinear incision. Um, you know, the reality is you actually don't need a really large incision. I think the key is that you then get down and widely excise the clavi pectoral fascia. Um, and I remember that's something that I learned sort of memorizing as a resident to talk about this surgery, but until you've done a few, you don't really realize what the value of that is. And so I think, you know, real life advice is that, you know, that widely excising the clavi pectoral fascia is really what gets you good visualization of the axilla. Um, there are then a couple of, I guess, surgical approaches. I prefer sort of a medial to lateral approach. Um, so I like to start by identifying the pectoralis major muscle and I sort of widely, um, you know, dissect along that muscle. So I've really nicely exposed it. I then follow it down so that I've exposed pec minor. Um, and I'm really kind of down on the chest wall and have started to loosen up that tissue, really got into that axillary fat. I then work my way superiorly and identify the axillary vein. And this can often really just be done with blunt dissection, particularly if you've kind of started that medial dissection, um, just blunt dissection with your finger on a sponge or a sponge stick, you know, whatever instrument you like. Um, once you've identified the axillary vein, I usually leave about a centimeter. So I work sort of about a centimeter inferior to the vein and just work my way along medial to lateral. Um, there will often be some crossing branches that need to be ligated. Work my way all the way along really until I've identified the latissimus. And then I come down the latissimus. So this is, you know, now we're kind of at the lateral side and I fully dissect along the latissimus. And um, so that I've now kind of really defined my medial, my superior and my lateral border. And then at this point, I go back to the medial, uh, to the chest wall. And again, really using exclusively blunt dissection. If you've kind of gotten down to the chest wall, you can sweep all of that axillary tissue um, off of the chest wall until you've identified your long thoracic. Um, you know, confirm that you've identified it. I do like to do this with the patients not paralyzed. Um, so that I can be really confident that I found my nerves. Um, and then I basically work my way now sort of superiorly. Um, you're now working, like I think of that I'm kind of working towards the patient's back. So you're kind of working straight down until you've identified subscap. Um, and you're just peeling that tissue sort of inferiorly and off of the subscapularis. And here is where you'll ultimately come across your um, thoracodorsal bundle. Uh, obviously that, you know, you want to preserve that. And I continue to clear the axillary tissue, even lateral to the thoracodorsal, really all the way to the lat, which I've already identified. So this is actually the pretty easy part of the operation. You're just kind of peeling everything within those borders that you've already created. Um, and you know, the inferior aspect of the axilla is kind of a nebulous border. There's not an obvious anatomic landmark, but really, you know, your lat and your chest will almost kind of start to converge. And that's how you know you've gotten to the inferior aspect of the axilla. Um, and I, you know, typically this all comes out kind of in one block. That's really level one. Often you've kind of got some of level two, but I then do, you know, make a note to really, um, make sure that I felt with my fingers sort of under the pec minor. And if, you know, particularly if there's anything gross that I can feel sort of, um, you know, dissect out any additional level two nodes that I've missed in my initial dissection. That was a brilliant description. What, what do you think are the big pitfalls that uh, or technical tips that you have for getting yourself uh, out of trouble when, when doing this? Yeah, I mean, I think that early exposure is really key. Um, so that, you know, sort of what I was harping on, I guess, about that clavi pectoral fascia. Um, and then I think like for me, I just find it really helpful. Like the, the pec is a really consistent, easy landmark. And that's why I like to start there. I think like sometimes you can get a little bit lost in the axilla. Um, and I think just really, you know, systematically identifying those three landmarks, the pec, the axillary vein and the lat will really keep you oriented. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the nerves from there are actually, you know, the nerves, I should, you know, the long thoracic nerve and the thoracodorsal bundle from there, you know, are, are pretty easy to identify. Um, the last topic that I'm going to um, pester you about or, or ask you about <laughs> is on recurrent disease, because I think that was something that we also struggled with a lot with um, studying for our exam. Um, you know, they'll, they'll give you different sort of um, scenarios 
uh, you know, the isolated axillary recurrence, the isolated supraclavicular recurrence. Um, maybe we can start with uh, sort of your general approach. You know, you, you have a patient who mm-hmm. has previously had uh, surgery for breast cancer and now comes back in with, let's say, a isolated supraclavicular node. How do you uh, approach that patient? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I remember a lot of the the scenarios you worry about for the exam, you know, clinically in real life are actually really rare. Um, but nonetheless, I think, you know, anybody with local regional recurrent disease, it's reasonable to first sort of stop, take your time. I, I do believe in distant staging for all of these patients. I think NCCN does recommend that. Um, so really restaging, you know, biopsying suspicious things, um, really identifying the extent of disease because there is a significant portion of patients who will present with concurrent distant metastatic recurrences at the time of a local regional recurrence. And, you know, you don't want to miss that. Um, I think local or regional recurrences is really an area where multidisciplinary review is critical. You know, I think here is definitely an area where involving medical oncology, involving radiation oncology, you know, all of your subsequent treatment decisions are largely dependent on what previous treatment the patient has had. Um, And so, you know, having the colleagues who have administered those therapies previously involved and really understanding sort of where this patient stands is critical. Um, The isolated supraclavicular recurrence, you know, I think, again, it's it's really dependent. Like if a patient has already had regional nodal radiation, then they're not necessarily eligible for that again. And so in that case, you would be thinking more about systemic therapy. Um, I think if they haven't had prior um, regional nodal radiation, then, you know, radiation first approach is often the way that we'll go, although it, it does depend a little bit on the extent of disease because, you know, radiation is really most effective for small volume disease. And so, you know, again, a little bit dependent on the presentation. I think it's important to know for the exam that, you know, we don't typically, well, we don't um, surgically resect supraclavicular disease. That is not typical therapy. So um, really sort of radiation or systemic therapy is your first step. The same goes for internal mammary nodes. Those are, that's not really thought of as surgically resectable disease. Um, isolated axillary recurrences, you know, if it's an operable lesion, then typically the first step would be an axillary lymph node dissection, um, and then followed by, you know, potentially axillary radiation, again, depending on what the patients had previously, plus or minus systemic therapy, depending on what the patients had previously and the extent of the recurrence. And then for locally recurrent disease, I guess would be sort of the last scenario Um, here. Again, their previous surgical therapy is really important. So a patient who's had previously breast conserving surgery and has a local recurrence, um, you know, the standard therapy would be a mastectomy. And typically we do try to restage the axilla. This is a little bit of a data-free zone, but in a patient who's previously had a sentinel lymph node biopsy, um, you know, our practice certainly is to try a repeat sentinel node biopsy, and um, it actually will map the majority of times. Um, in patients, uh, alternatively, who have already had an axillary lymph node dissection, we do not routinely restage the axilla in those patients unless there's something grossly abnormal on their exam. And then if patients have had a prior mastectomy and have a chest wall or a skin recurrence, um, again, if it's operable disease, then typically an excision to negative margin would be your first step. And then sort of adjuvant radiation and systemic therapy, depending on all of those other factors. I guess, I guess one of the things we, that we struggled with was sort of the, the sequencing sometimes of what therapy you'd get, particularly for the supraclavicular lymph node recurrence, it seemed like there was some difference, uh, depending on what resources you'd read about whether to chemo first versus radiation first. Does that really matter? uh, Or is that sort of just an institution-dependent type of uh, issue? Yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest, I feel like it's a little bit outside of my area of expertise. My understanding is that, you know, depending on the bulk of disease, um, you know, the radiation oncologist can help determine whether they feel that their radiation therapy can effectively um, 
you know, can effectively treat that volume, or if the patient may benefit from some cytoreduction from systemic therapy, such that the radiation therapy can then be more effective. Um, so that I think is where the sequencing piece does become a question. And I think, um, you know, again, outside of my area of expertise, but, uh, you know, involving those two colleagues, I think that's why it's so critical. You know, it's interesting to listen to you guys talk about uh, not doing that many axillary lymph node dissections in residency because I'm not that old, I don't think, but I certainly <laughs> remember doing them sort mm -hmm. of every day uh, on general, general surgical rotations. It's interesting to see how far things have come. And it's always fascinating to, to listen to that because it seems in terms of progress and treat, treatment progress and philosophy to change within breast oncology, maybe even at a pace greater uh, or certainly a sustained pace that's greater than most other fields. One of the things I remember, um, Dr. Laws, was being told very early in my residency, which again is a little bit ago now, that soon one day breast uh, oncologic management would be entirely non-operative. That's clearly not the case now. Mm -hmm. What's your what's your vision or your or your your belief in terms of if that'll ever happen and 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 maybe what that will look like in another fifteen years from now? Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting thought. Um, you know, again, I think there's real sort of differences amongst breast cancer subtypes with this question, um, and so you know, particularly patients with triple negative or HER2 positive disease who are, you know, more and more commonly treated with their neoadjuvant systemic therapy, which is usually chemotherapy up front, you know, chemotherapy has gotten so good that it does really have this ability to melt away disease in a significant proportion of patients. And we're seeing that sort of even at great percentages now, um, and there's, you know, better systemic therapy coming down the pipeline. You know, we just had sort of some early data about um, immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting for triple negative breast cancer presented at ASCO this year. Um, and, you know, we're seeing even greater rates of, of a complete pathologic response with that therapy. And so, you know, I, I have to believe that the systemic therapy is just going to get better and better. Um, and, you know, in the setting where it's done first, you know, I could see that I could see that we are eventually going to get to a part where surgery may not have a role in all patients with breast cancer. Um, you know, there's already been a lot of, of interest in this in these subtypes in particular. And unfortunately, thus far, you know, there's not any one imaging modality that seems to be able to predict a PCR with enough reliability. Um, there's also, you know, after that was kind of determined, there's now been more recent efforts looking at, you know, can we do multiple core biopsies of the tumor bed? And can that be, you know, have a, a reasonable enough false negative rate that we can identify patients who don't need surgery? And unfortunately, those early efforts have, you know, not suggested that that's the case, and we're, we're not quite there yet. Um, but certainly in those subtypes in particular, I can, I can see that coming. Um, you know, in the hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease, I'm not as sure. I think if anything, the movement in the systemic therapy world has been, you know, trying to pull back a little bit on how many patients we're giving chemotherapy to, you know, as you know, we've as we've talked about today, uh, genomic assays have really helped us to identify a large subset of women who don't get a lot of benefit from chemotherapy and who um, have excellent long-term outcomes with endocrine therapy alone. And, you know, even if we were to think about moving endocrine therapy to the neoadjuvant setting, we know that endocrine therapy doesn't really melt away disease the way that chemotherapy does. And so I, you know, my gut is that in those patients, there's always going to be a role for surgery. Um, but you know, who knows? I mean, I totally agree. It's amazing. You know, as we were, Amir and I were talking earlier that just, you know, things have changed in breast since I wrote my exam, you know, a year ago, it's just the, the pace of change is, is extremely rapid. And I think, um, you know, I think it, it could go in many number of ways. Yeah, it's so true. It's, it's really remarkable. And it, it's probably a good model of not only envy, but uh, really something we should all aim to in other subspecialty diseases. It's uh, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, Allie, we wanted to touch on just a, a short list of things. Uh, again, more about you and and uh, and move on from from the importance of of your breast uh, uh, comments. 
um, with regard to oncologic care. You know, both you and Amir have spent uh, time in Boston uh, at various parts. And, and as uh, we heard, you're, you continue to be there right now and maybe forever. Who knows? Hey, but um, I, I'm curious, you, you know, everybody I've ever known who's gone to do some segment of training in Boston from really undergraduate all the way through medical school and fellowship training and, and staffdom has absolutely loved that experience. So first to you and then also to Amir, what, it is, what is it about Boston that, that is so enriching and, and so unique and, and so awesome? Yeah, it's very true. I mean, I, I feel the same way about my training and now my, um, you know, my position here. I think, you know, there are really a large concentration of sort of the thought leaders in the field of breast cancer concentrated at Brigham and Women's in Dana-Farber um, and getting to work alongside those people in sort of the clinical care of your patients on a day-to-day -day basis and then also in your academic efforts. Um, you just can't help but learn from them. I mean, there's just, there's so much knowledge. Um, and not only is there so much knowledge, but it's, um, it's an environment where they really promote education and they really are focused on, you know, the senior, more senior colleagues mentoring the junior people in the department and the amount of sort of time and focus um, and attention, I think, that's given to making sure that everybody is, is learning and moving forward and kind of this idea of lifelong learning is really just epitomized in the group, uh, certainly the breast oncology group. Um, and so I think I have been so grateful for that. I mean, just, you know, the amount of time that people dedicate to sort of mentoring you and making sure that you're progressing as a clinician and as, a, as an academic, um, you know, there's a really strong focus on that. Um, and that is, you know, makes all the difference as a trainee or as a junior faculty. Yeah, that's, that's so well said. You know what? It's interesting. One of my best friends who's a neurosurgeon in the U.S. Uh, now um, did a, a Ph.D. at the University of Alberta, and he was a pretty good heavyweight. I mean, his first two papers were published in Science and his third in Nature, and he went down to Harvard and did a postdoc down there and then did med school and then and then left. And I, I asked him the same question. I said, what's the difference between U of A, you know, in the biochemistry world, which was superb and Boston? He said, well, the difference is you can walk down the hall and talk to three people that have won a Nobel Prize on that topic. And I was just like, oh, my God, that that is truly amazing. And I, I wish we could all experience that. I just echo what uh, both of you are saying. I think it's just uh, the ability to have rich conversations with people from many different backgrounds who really care about what they're doing and really believe that they can make a difference and change things um that it's just a it's a very intoxicating kind of experience and uh it's really enjoyable ali we we wanted to talk to you a little bit about um one of the the, the topics that we've talked about on the show before which is uh the concept of regret so tim pollock um who's obviously um, a heavyweight in, in, in surgery down at OSU has written a lot about this topic of regret. And uh, this is particularly important in breast cancer where there's a lot of different factors that patients have to think about, including cosmesis, but also, you know, oncologic considerations like recurrence. How do you approach these very challenging discussions in, in clinic with patients? Yeah, it's a, yeah, definitely very applicable. Um, you know, I think this comes up a lot when you're counseling patients about breast conserving surgery versus mastectomy. Um, I think this is probably even more relevant when patients are thinking about a contralateral prophylactic mastectomy. Um, and I think, you know, we're fortunate in breast that um, there's actually been a lot of interest in incorporating patient reported outcomes into some of the, you know, research efforts that have been done in this area. And so we actually do have some reasonable data um, that we can talk to patients about. And I do, I do explicitly address that with patients, you know, for patients thinking about bilateral mastectomies, um, there's a really nice position statement that's been put out by ASBRS um, that sort of summarizes some of that data. And, you know, I tell patients that 
so like I say, I, I talk quite explicitly. So I first sort of focus on my oncologic recommendations and, and what I think, you know, is, a, is good treatment options for the patient from an oncologic perspective. Um, and then I always turn the discussion to, you know, what are the implications for you otherwise as a of a mastectomy or of a bilateral mastectomy? Um, and we know, fortunately, you know, not a lot of patients express significant regret about their decision, although there are probably somewhere in the range of five to 10% of patients who do regret whatever decision they make. Um, but there are, you know, about 25 to 35% of patients that if they choose mastectomy are unsatisfied with their outcome in some way. Um, and I think patients don't appreciate that about a mastectomy. Um, and when I say unsatisfied, that's, you know, things like you've identified. So cause, you know, un unhappy with the cosmetic result. Um, what I think patients appreciate even less is um, the impact on their body image their sexuality. Um, and that's been, you know, well documented in some of these studies that have that have asked patients. And, you know, we have data from large numbers of people on this. Um, and so I, I pretty explicitly talk about that with people. Um, and I find if if you've kind of given, you know, the oncologic information and then some of this PRO data, I think from there patients do self-select a little bit. And I think, you know, at the same time, I, I trust that most patients know themselves pretty well. And that's probably why we see, you know, relatively low, low rates of true, you know, regret with the decision. I think, um, you know, I think people kind of self-select from there as to whether, you know, what, you know, these balancing of these oncologic considerations versus, you know, these other um, real quality of life outcomes with more aggressive surgical treatments. Um, but, you know, some patients are more receptive than others. And so, you know, the conversation is very different every time. <laughs> um, and, you know, sometimes I feel better about it at the end than other times. Uh, so I think it's still something that I'm sorting out, to be honest. Well, that's that's well said, Allison. The, the last thing we wanted to talk to you about, um, and again, um, thank you for your, your time and your expertise and your candor. Um, the last thing was, was about your experience, um, really on the other side of the knife or the table or the curtain or whatever terminology mm -hmm. you'd like to use, but as a patient who underwent surgery and I mean, I'll, I'll just point out for the listeners that we did clear this with you before, and we're, we're really privileged that you're willing to talk about it. I, I guess my questions are, are sort of maybe threefold. The, the first is just broadly, what was that experience like in hindsight? I'm curious also how it may have altered or probably did alter your, your view of surgery and your development as a surgeon in general. And then I'm curious uh, in particular about, you know, for somebody like me, uh, to be honest, who, you know, I had a knee procedure done, but that's not saying a lot. Someone who has a more invasive or, or high risk procedure. Um, what are some of the things that you think you know, we need to be cognizant of and improve upon as as surgeons and, and physicians in general for the for the patient. Yeah, it's very interesting. So I had um, this experience, um, you know, it was a laparotomy it was my operation for a tumor, you know, the uracal tumor that um, turned out to be benign, but there was some diagnostic uncertainty. Um, and I was 20 years old, I was in third year university. Um, so this was really sort of pre medicine. And I'm very grateful, honestly, to have had that experience before having any exposure to the medical world, um, because I definitely think that it has given me insight, you know, definitely insight into what it's like as a patient um, who's not kind of in it and who's, you know, naive to, to the whole medical sphere. Um, you know, I think it was... Um, it was a stressful experience. I think it was stressful partly um, because of my other life circumstances. Like I was sort of in the middle of applying to medical school and in the middle of exams and it all happened very quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, I was living where I didn't have any family. And so, you know, I think, I think having, I think I have a, a definite appreciation for how sort of your, other life context can shape the experience of having to go through a major operation um, and sort of prepare for it mentally, have it, recover from it, all of these things. Um, it definitely shaped, you know, definitely shapes the way that I care for patients. And I think 
you know, it was interesting. I don't know that it largely influenced my decision to pursue surgery, but, um, you know, the fact that I did choose general surgery, I think it has kept the whole experience a little bit fresher in my mind than it otherwise may have been. And sometimes I'm surprised at the level of detail that I still remember about the whole experience. Um, and I think, you know, being in the surgical world and, and sort of becoming really attuned to all of these things on the other side has, has helped me to, to kind of remember um, and keep it fresh in my mind. I think, um, you know, the way that it has shaped how I provide care and there's a couple of things. There's a couple of like key moments that I remember. Um, one was the feeling of sort of entering the operating room. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I hadn't, I wasn't particularly afraid. I, I felt okay. I felt kind of mentally and emotionally ready pretty much until that moment where I was rolled into the operating room. And I remember like the whole environment just suddenly felt very foreign. I felt a lot of fear you know, you suddenly had people kind of touching every part of your body, right? Like people are putting things on your legs and your arms and your face and lots of people are talking at you. And, um, you know, I remember that being just very overwhelming. Um, and I, you know, so now as a surgeon, it's something that I actually talk to patients about in the, in the pre-op therapy area. I sort of warn patients that, you know, listen, when you get in the room, there's going to be a lot of bodies. You might hear a lot of talking. You're going to hear monitors. People are going to be putting things on your body. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that helps. Maybe that just makes people more worried, but I think, you know, that was really surprising to me and kind of took me, took me by surprise. And it's something that I do now communicate to patients ahead of time. I think it also um, has made me really cognizant about that period of time in the operating room, you know, as a surgeon or a trainee or the nurse working in the room. I mean, it's kind of just another day in the office. And I think sometimes, you know, there can be personal conversations, there can be laughter, there can be, you know, it can be a little easy to just kind of not be laser focused on our professionalism. And I think those moments, I now really think about that and strive to kind of keep that as, you know, try not to add any more overwhelming piece to that experience for patients. And, you know, it's a short period of time between when they come in the room and when they're anesthetized. Um, and I think really kind of controlling the environment and, and maintaining our professionalism during that time is really critical. Um, and it's something that I think about, I think, based on my own experience. Uh, you know, having been on the other side uh, of the table as well, too, uh, I really wanted to echo one thing that you said about um, just realizing like how important this moment is to that person you have lying on the table like i i felt exactly the same to you which is interesting even though i had a totally different operation um that i just didn't want anyone like laughing like i n now it's funny because i i i recognize that like when people are relaxed that's actually a good sign but i didn't want that when i was having my surgery like i just wanted people to be like totally focused on me yeah. and just really like at treating me like i was you know, the most important person in the room. Um, so, you know, it's just funny how, like, how these little things, um, when you become a patient, you really notice. And they're not necessarily the same things that you think matter to you uh, as a surgeon, right? Like, you know, as surgeons, we're mm -hmm. thinking about recurrence and mortality and morbidity and, and these very hard outcomes. But it's like sometimes these very little things that really bother patients. Um, how do you think that we can go about um, getting better, a better sense of what really matters to patients and, and trying to, to address those things just as much as the big things that, that we're always concerned about? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so a good example of this, I guess, from my surgery was, um, you know, remember in the preoperative consultation, you know, he's talked to me about everything you know, involved in the surgery. And I, um, you know, whatever, kind of went through all the details, went through the uh, expected recovery. And then he had me get up on the examination table and he examined me. And then while he was examining my abdomen, he kind of showed me like, okay, here's what your incision is going to look like. And, you know, I have, it was like umbilicus to, to super pubic bone, basically. So it's a pretty big incision. And I remember like all of a sudden being like, oh my gosh, like, wow, this is, this is real. Like this is a big operation. 
And (laughs) I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. But then the second thing I thought about was, oh, my gosh, like I'm going to have this huge scar. Um, And, you know, I had to have my umbilicus resected as part of this operation. And so then he's you know telling me you're not going to have a belly button anymore. And, you know, those things mattered to me at that point in my life. I, I, you know, I was sort of like, oh, wow. okay, so, you know, what? What can I do to sort of make the scar heal well and make it look like I, you know, normal if I wear a bathing suit and these kind of things. Um, And I think about it now and I'm sure, you know, as the, you know, urologic oncology surgeon, he's like, oh my goodness, this girl, you know, cares more about her incision than anything else. But, um, you know, he allowed me time for that narrative um, and he listened and, you know, he gave me a monocle closure and, uh, you know, some other little things. And, and I think I, you know, I, that really helped build rapport. Um, and I really appreciated him for that. And I still do. Um, and so I think, you know, I think we have to respect, you know, what our patients tell us and, you know, when possible, um, try to accommodate that and, and, be aware of the fact that they may be worried about things that we're not, you know, aren't necessarily front and center in our mind. Um, but, you know, I, I bet most people who go through surgery have a story like that of, you know, something that they were a bit fixated on that the surgeon sort of wasn't. Um, and, you know, within reason, I think we, we want to allow patients, you know, time to express that and, and sort of accommodate when able. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.